With the growth of the internet and social media, we've seen an unprecedented amount of online health resources developed. With just a few clicks, we can access medical journals, tools to help us understand our own health, or even applications that can help us with our own care. But without regulation to ensure accuracy of information, the onus is on each of us as individuals to differentiate between fact and misinformation. Welcome back to another episode of At Women's Research, a podcast produced by the Women's Health Research Institute. My name is Melissa Nelson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Beth Payne. She's a research associate in the School of Population and Public Health at UBC and a WHRI member whose research has focused on implementation and evaluation of mobile health tools for maternal and child health, and more recently, the use of pragmatic trials in global women's health for health system improvement. I'm also excited to welcome Dr. Robina Duncan, postdoctoral research fellow with the WHRI and the Vaccine Evaluation Center of the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. Her work focuses on the impact of the HPV vaccine and the most optimal schedule for administering it. On this episode, Dr. Duncan and Dr. Payne grapple with a complex question. What role does the research community play in preventing the spread of misinformation? Their conversation is grounded in the current global health crisis spurred by COVID-19 underscoring how important it is that we have the tools to identify evidence-based health information. As a final note, statistics for COVID-19 are changing rapidly. The numbers discussed in this episode were current as of 11 a.m. on March 31st, 2020. For up-to-date information or to access any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please see our show notes. Now I'll pass the mic over to Dr. Duncan. Hello. I'm Rubina Donka, and today I will be speaking with my friend and colleague, Beth Payne, about how to combat misinformation online. I come to this discussion with experience in vaccine evaluation. Misinformation is on the factors leading to the WHO recognizing vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. Also, among those who get vaccinated, there might be unanswered questions that could make them hesitant for future vaccines. And a huge fueling into vaccine hesitancy was the publication of the now discredited study by Andrew Wakefield in The Lancet in 1988. This paper indicated a false link between autism and the measles vaccine. It wasn't completely retracted and debunked till 2010. However, this proven to be false myth is still being shared on social media these days. There have been studies that showed an association between exposure to potential negative messages about vaccinations and lower vaccination rates. Also, a positive association is found between a number of reports in mainstream media and the uptake for the influenza vaccine. In the long term, factors that are affecting the vaccine uptake in a negative way will lead to severe morbidity and ultimately mortality on a population level. For example, it has been estimated that under the current uptake of the HPV vaccine of approximately 60%, the number of prevented cancers related to HPV in Canada between 2018 and 2042 is over 5,000 cases. However, if we would increase this uptake to approximately 80%, we can additionally prevent another 311 cancer cases. Beth, can you start by explaining the aim of this podcast and what we are hoping to achieve? Hello, everyone. I'm really happy to be talking today with you, Rubina, about this topic. And I think your example from your own work on uh, the HPV vaccine sets the stage perfectly for this topic uh, by highlighting the potential costs of misinformation to 
our health and as well as the, the healthcare system. And so these are the themes that we're going to discuss today on this podcast. And the podcast really came about after a recent CTV interview that I did with Janessa Greening from the BC Women's Health Foundation. And in that um, really brief interview, we focused on tips to finding good quality health information at, online and highlighted how for women in particular who have been historically left out of health research, there are real limitations in medical knowledge around women's bodies. And it, so that makes it really important to learn how to use the multitude of online resources out there to stay informed and to be able to advocate for our own health. So I hope that we can continue this discussion today, but given the current public health crisis around uh, COVID-19, I, I want to make sure we're leaving listeners with a few new tools to help them stay informed without really getting overwhelmed by the immense amount of information that's currently circulating. Thank you, Beth. I totally agree. This is definitely a women's health issue. But also in the current pandemic, it is even more important to ensure that we are accurately informed and fighting any misinformation that could lead to negative health consequences for all of us. Especially in this time where so many are looking for information, there is a high engagement for people creating fake news with the purpose to confuse. As healthcare professionals or researchers, we are often looked at as a source of information in times like this. So we must stay well informed. And also, we need to be honest about things we might not know or are in general not known or not known yet. It is also important at a time like this to remember that we all speak from a place of privilege. If you are sharing health information or advice online, think about how the advice and information will resonate with the people whose experience and training might be very different from your own, and also whose home situation might be very different from your own. It is also good to recognize that many people have a certain level of skepticism, but this is mainly directed against mainstream media and medical institutions. So that's a great point that you just touched on about the skepticism of the medical institution as a whole and the need for good quality information in a time like this. Um, the original CTV interview that I did was really motivated by many women in my life who had been coming to me regularly to ask questions about health topics or to bring some sort of blog or information that they found online and ask if um, I thought that it was real or valuable information. And I'm not a medical doctor, but it was clear that the, the, the people in my life trust me and try, trust my information, the information that I have. But it really, for me, identified a, a need uh, in the people in my life to learn how to evaluate online health information. And like I said, online women face a particular um, a, a particular challenge uh, because of the limited research and, and data that exists around our care, but also because we're often dismissed by care providers because they don't have the answers to and or the tools to answer our questions effectively. Um, and so this often results in women turning to online health advice that's not necessarily going to help them and may in fact sometimes harm them. And I bring this up because I think the situation in the current uh, COVID-19 pandemic is very similar where information is limited, it's changing very rapidly, and people want answers, understandably. 
And um, we just don't have all the answers yet as, as scientists and as academics. Um, so it becomes very, very important about uh, with regards to how we're engaging in public messaging. So that just brings me to a topic that I wanted to address before we get into the meat of the, the information on the podcast. And that's an overarching theme about trust. Um, uh, we ourselves are probably all regularly being asked questions by friends and family. And that's because our opinions are trusted. And so it's really important that we learn to communicate respectfully and clearly and maintain this trust. I actually watched a really great video um, just the other day from a doctor in New York, and he was talking about how this COVID-19 crisis is, could actually be viewed as an opportunity to empower people to engage more in their health and to gain a better understanding of healthcare and health information and to rebuild trust within the scientific community and between the public and the institutions of science and medicine. Um, we know that this trust has been eroded in the past few years, and I really love this idea that we can bring a positive change from this crisis as, as researchers and as academics. So part of what it, of fighting misinformation um, is remaining clear and honest and, like you said, transparent with what you do know and what you don't know and being respectful in your communication uh, when you're sharing information online. To get to the real topic at hand, in the CDV segment, you presented three questions you can ask yourself when assessing whether a website is providing solid health information or advice. I want us to expand on these and add some more tips and resources related to social media and the current pandemic to reiterate those questions. First, is the site or the post credible? Secondly, is the content accurate and complete? And last but not least, does the site have resources and links to health research. Can you start with reiterating what you meant in the first question, Beth? Thanks, Ravina. Uh, for the first question, is the site or post credible? What I'm really referring to is looking at who authored the information, and that can be an individual or it can be an organization. Um, for an individual on a website, it's easy to check the About Us tab and um, check uh, do they have any sort of training and credentials necessary to provide medical advice or information? And if not, you can look, is that individual backed by something like a professional medical organization? Or is there a medical board that they work with that verifies their content? And that's another great thing to check for an organization is do, do they have a medical board that is reviewing all of the health content that they're providing? And um, for social media posts, this can sometimes be a little bit harder to check, but you can look through anyone's profile and see who they, a bit about who they are, what the organization does. Often it links to a website where you can look at more detail about the organization. Um, but a really simple thing to always check, and this has come up for me a few times around information circulating around COVID-19 is, does the information have a logo associated with it for some sort of um, institution or medical association? Usually uh, any sort of information put out by government or, or um, a, a credentialed organization will always include their logo. 
Um, as a general rule of thumb, I like to prioritize information at times like this and when looking for health information from educational institutions, government sources, and health-related organizations or associations. So just I just want to expand a little bit further on this and um, talk more about our responsibilities at as informed people in our own posts and how we can stop spreading misinformation ourselves. So one good example is if you're retweeting or sharing any content online, you should look through the credibility of that, the information you're sharing in these ways that I just described. Um, but also if you see something and realize it's misinformation, Remember that it's always better to try to correct this information with with um, with some sort of truthful, contradicting um, uh, health information that's grounded in in research, rather than just to criticize the post. Um, and this practice is actually backed up by research that has shown that sharing corrective information from credible sources can contradict misinformation found online and is way more effective to change beliefs than simply refuting what is being said. So if you're not brave enough to contradict someone online, because that can sometimes be a bit uh, scary, it's important to remember to never, ever share the misinformation you see, even as a joke. And the reason for this is um, one additional concern when you're retweeting or sharing misinformation, even as a joke, is that repetition of this information can make people begin to believe it as fact. And this is something called the illusory truth effect. Um, and this has given a lot of power to fake news or false information that masquerades as science. Um, Rubina, I think this is probably a great time and a place for you to jump in and, and maybe share with the listeners some good sources of information that you're currently using to share with your community and share online, um, specifically related to, to COVID-19. Yes, I think there's an enormous amount of information being shared online on COVID-19, and it's really important to recognize which sources are credible. First of all, BCCDC is doing an amazing job finding this pandemic, and it's also a great source of data on the coronavirus here in BC. Not only with regard to the current statistics, but they also provide modeling about the expectations for the course of the pandemic within BC. And as we speak, many journals like JAMA and The Lancet are offering free access to up-to-date research on the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the COVID-19 disease. And it's really great that this is all being shared free of charge at the moment. And then I would also like to point out the COVID-19 website of the BC government. It contains links to all the public statements made by our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is a true public health champion, as well as information on current restrictions, but also information on, for example, financial support of those in need. Of course, the latest global information can be found on the WHO website. And if you are interested in the latest global stats, John Hopkins has published an online tracking dashboard showing global cases, deaths and resolved cases. Please keep in mind that over time, the case definition might have changed and also might vary between countries. The BC government has also established an app or an online tool to find out whether you will need to get tested or need further assessment for COVID-19. And you can find this at bc.trive.health slash COVID-19. 
And if you or a loved one is experiencing any symptoms, I would really recommend to go there. And then some examples of social media accounts to follow to get regional updates are those of the BCCBC, um, the BC government, our own minister, Adrian Dix, and your local health authority, of course, along with that one of the WHRI. And this really leads us into the next question. How do we check posts and website for accuracy and completeness before reposting or sharing and also when using the content ourselves? Beth, do you mind reiterating on important points to consider when evaluating this content? Of course. Thanks, Rubina, for all those resources. Um, so again, a few simple things to look at when evaluating websites, um, particularly in the current climate, uh, as uh, information evolves so quickly, you want to see the date the content was last updated. And so that should be recent. You want to know that someone is monitoring and maintaining, maintaining that content. You can also read through disclaimers on, on most websites, and that will show you important information around who is paying for the site, because it really um, it's really hard to uh, sell a product, for example, of any sort, as well at the same time as giving credible and objective health information. So uh, if, if you see that the site is just trying to sell some sort of treatment, I would be very wary of that. Um, and also, uh, there's always two sides to a story. So if you are looking at a post or a person's history of posts, you can go back and see the type of thing that they're, they're posting. And it's all very one-sided and it's all geared towards one activity or one viewpoint. I'm always a little bit um, concerned with that when, with regards to health information because it shows that there's some sort of bias behind what that person believes or that organizations trying to support. So that um, really leads into the last and really big topic that I, I'm hoping that Rabina, you and I can can dig into. And when looking at content of, of sites, um, you'll often see on social media posts or on websites that people will link to other sources of information to substantiate their claims. And we always want to check that those are actually links to public or published research and check that they the links work. Um, and does it go to a journal article or what is it going to? Is it just going to a bunch of testimonials? And it's important to remember that hearing other people's views on things can be reassuring and 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 but it's not the same as evidence. So um Rubina, your expertise is in epidemiology, so uh, I thought this was going to be a good opportunity for you to help expand on how do we look at published research and and try to determine if it's it's really a credible source itself, because that's a whole other layer of of misinformation and credibility. Yeah, I think first it is it is good to look what where is the research public published and um, is this a scientific journal and then go to the website of that journal and get an idea about whether the publications in that journal are being peer-reviewed. So that means that other uh, researchers throughout the globe have looked at this research before it was published. Um, 
And there is often a little bit of a back and forward between the reviewers and the original author to get the best quality uh, publication as possible. And then it is also, if you look at that journal website, you can get an idea about, for example, who's on the editorial board and are those uh, widely recognized scientists. And um, now several journals, as I already indicated, have provided open access uh, with a fast turnaround time for publications on COVID-19. So that is great. But also to be able to share information in on a high pace, uh, currently many researchers are using online repositories to publish their findings in a, in a very early stage. And um, it, is, it is great that this is happening and it really helps to fight us um, this pandemic. But it's also important to recognize that those publications aren't peer reviewed yet. So it's really important if you look at that kind of um, publications to be extra careful about possible limitations that might occur in the study design or the interpretation of the findings for that publication. And then um, there is something, and we, we can touch further on this a little bit later, but unfortunately there are predatory journals around and currently the estimates are there are about 8,000 of these uh, journals and they charge high publication fees to the authors, but they don't have a really stringent peer review process. It's, it's merely a matter of paying to get your publication out. Um, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But if you have found a credible study, um, it is also really important to think about how generalizable are the results of this study. So who was studied? Uh, are these just males? Are these males and females? And we know that women are historically underrepresented in health research. And this is a problem that might still occur. So it's really important to focus on how can you interpret the findings into the population you are interested in. And the same goes for adults versus children. And more and more studies were being done in adults. Um, so might not be directly translatable towards a pediatric um, population. It's also important from a historical, um, cultural, ethical, and also biological perspective to know where was the research performed. So was this in North America? Where was this um, in Europe or Africa or where out? And it's also important to consider how big was the sample they studied. And like very small studies might give you an indication about a problem, but maybe the sample was not, the study was not sampled uh, to detect a difference at all, for example. Um, and you can imagine that data from a study where, for example, only 10 participants were part in the study might show uh, a less clear evidence than a study where 10,000 of people were included. And then if you have thought about how generalizable are your findings, it's also important to think about the study design. So did the authors include a control group, for example? Um, which can give you an indication about what the situation without, for example, a treatment would have looked like. And if so, did the researchers look at possible differences between the groups and eventually control for that? And there, there are various types of research. So there are case series and observational studies, which we see now 
a lot in the early stage of the pandemic. Um, but also with more and more data and longer term follow-up becoming available, other kinds of studies will become available, like randomized controlled trials, but also uh, in a later stage, systematic reviews and meta-analysis combining the findings of multiple studies. And then it's important to ask yourself, does this study address causation? So does A really cause B? And association does not automatically mean causation. And when studies are not evaluating causation, uh, they can, of course, be great topic starters and they can really generate hypothesis for future research. But you cannot conclude that A leads to B from, from these kind of studies. And then it's important to acknowledge that insights might change, especially during something uh, as fastly progressive as an epidemic or a pandemic. And for example, when you look at the case fatality rates in COVID-19 over time, as well as the age-specific case fatality rates, um, with more and more data becoming available, the numerator and the denominator will evolve. But then also the testing practices will, might change over time. And when more people get sick, um, also more of them uh, will be in an intermittent phase before they actually resolve their disease or die. Um, so currently the global figure is that about 825,000 cases are diagnosed with COVID-19. And then about 40,000 of them have died since. But at this point, we only know from about 174 of them uh, sorry, 174,000 of them that they have recovered. So that number is going to change over the next few days and probably weeks. And then it's also important to know that if we are looking at numbers, so actual case numbers, um, those uh, might be different between different countries because because you might have different denominators. But it's also important to uh, recognize that what we are observing today is based probably on an exposure uh, from approximately 10 to 14 days ago. So when we are talking about the actual numbers right now, it is important that what we are looking at contains some kind of delay. Great. Thank you, Rubina. That's a really complex um topic to explain research in, in a few minutes, but uh, that was a great introduction, and I think that was that was really um, helpful. And this is a topic you and I can talk for hours about, um, but you did mention the predatory publishing, and I just want to touch on that one, one um, minute more, um, because I get, as, as a researcher, I get tons of emails every day asking me to publish with new journals. And it's really hard even for me to tell which journal is real and which is a predatory one. And I think that this is something that can be very confusing to people, whether you have a science background or not. Um, and there aren't, other than looking at does the, the journal have um, an editorial board? Does it have an impact factor of any sort whatsoever? It doesn't really matter what the number is. Or is it searchable in one of the databases like PubMed that can give you some sense of if it's a predatory journal, but it's sometimes really hard to determine what, what's going on. And um, for, so I, 
I think that just highlights that we need to think critically. We need to be careful with what we're posting ourselves and and give give it some time and, and admit if we make a mistake. I myself fell prey to this. Uh, I saw all the headlines around ibuprofen and I told all my friends to stop taking ibuprofen. And then it did come and that was published in The Lancet, which is a good journal. But then it did over time as more data came out and, and better analysis of that data happened, it became clear that that wasn't the only interpretation of that information. And so um, uh, this can make it a bit uh, confusing and, and hard to communicate effectively. Um, and it, it also, to me, highlights that uh, there's something that is going on in the background of all of this. And we, we've talked about this before you and I, but, um, the, the misinformation and these, these kind of fake news posts that are out there, they really play on something called our, called uh, confirmation bias, where we're more likely to believe things if, if they fit within our underlying belief system and biases. And so, um, there's a great New York Times article that I saw a little while ago called When Fiction Becomes Fact on Social Media. And I really encourage people to look that up and read it because it gives a lot more information about this topic and about the body of research that exists in relation to this and, and vaccine hesitancy and some of the other areas of science where this has happened. And so just to, to finish that thought off, I just want to go back as well to the point that um, really always remember, don't reshare posts if you think that they might not be true. That's probably the biggest thing that you can, can do on social media. So I think we're running out of time. So Rubina, um, why don't you give your final key take-home messages for the listeners? Yeah, thank you. I think it's really great if someone asks you about health information, that you are making sure to use accessible language and layman terms. Because any unclearly answered or completely unanswered questions might prone people to start searching on other platforms and might lead them to ending up with incorrect information or help them where they might find the answer to that question. And when you are reading about research yourself, uh, try to read every piece of information as it's the first thing you read about this topic, especially if it's also within your own field. Uh, and ask yourself, is this research design appropriate and are the findings valid and in line um, with what the authors conclude? And not only for those papers who are in contrast to what you would expect, but especially with the ones that align with what you are expecting to find. And several tools are available to evaluate the quality of studies. Uh, for example, the grade criteria and the risk of bias assessment tools, mainly uh, by Cochrane. So that's a great starter if you want to look more into the quality of studies. And then a great resource is also Puppier, which is an online journal club where you can find a lot of publications and a discussion about them between global uh, researchers. Thank you. Okay, so to close us off, I'm just going to reiterate and slightly update the piece of advice I've given before on this topic. And that is that informing yourself about your health online is a great way to be a self-advocate. And we all agree that this is a very important thing to do. But 
if you're concerned about your health, normally I would say the best way to check your symptoms is by visiting a healthcare provider. But in this current crisis, you can call the BC CDC COVID-19 self-assessment hotline or use the online tool. And there's there's a non-medical information line that you can call at 1-888-COVID-19. That's available from 7.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. seven days a week. And as always, always try to write down the symptoms that you're having when they started and what you've tried to do to make yourself feel better or worse. And remember, there's a wide range of what could be considered normal, and this varies from person to person. So try to do detail exactly what's changed for you yourself. And with that, I'm just going to say stay safe, everyone, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much again to Dr. Payne and Dr. Duncan for such a rich conversation. As a reminder, all of the resources discussed in today's episode can be found in our show notes. If you have an idea for an episode or have some research of your own to share, let us know. Send us an email at whri.communications at cw.bc.ca. For more information about WHRI, follow us on social media using the handle at women's research or check.